Welcome to Broadway Refocused, a podcast based on the Broadway Refocused project. This project explores Broadway's past with a new lens to understand Broadway's future. In each podcast episode, we will amplify the stories of women, queers, Black, Indigenous, and people of color in musical theater. We will listen, learn, and refocus so we can move forward in a more diverse and inclusive way. Broadway Refocused is hosted and taught by Spencer Williams, a musical theater educator, composer, and playwright. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. For today's episode, Broadway Refocused is excited to welcome Luis Salgado. Luis is an international director, choreographer, and educator from Puerto Rico based in New York City. He was the assistant Latin choreographer of In the Heights on Broadway, which won four Tony Awards, and has performed in In the Heights, Women on the Verge, Rocky, and On Your Feet on Broadway. Today we will explore his groundbreaking bilingual production of fame, how he finds purpose in art and storytelling, and what he believes diversity and inclusion will and should look like on Broadway. Before we dive into this week's episode, we want to thank you, the listener and student, for supporting Broadway Refocused. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to share these important stories. In Unit 3 of Broadway Refocused, we explore how Josh Logan and Rodgers and Hammerstein collaborated together to create South Pacific. We celebrate how the writers created a national conversation on race, how Juanita Hall, who played Bloody Mary, was the first Black person to win a Tony Award, and also learned about the anti-racist song, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. We also focus and uplift three members of the team production that are women and people of color to remember their stories. Today, we will hear directly from Oscar Hammerstein with Richard Rogers on the piano about their song, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. In the second act of South Pacific, A young American Navy nurse explaining her race prejudice says, I can't help this. This is emotional. It's born in me. And the second character, the man who is losing her because of this prejudice, shouts his protest. I do not believe this. I do not believe these things are born in you. And a third character, a young Marine lieutenant, played by my friend here, Bill Tabbert, says, It's not born in you. It happens after you're born. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got You can learn more about the musical South Pacific in Unit 3 of Broadway Refocused under the Classroom tab on our website. Please share with your friends and family so that we can continue these powerful conversations about diversity and inclusion on Broadway. And now, this week's episode. Luis is coming from Puerto Rico. He has the beautiful beach in the background, so we can all be a little jealous. No. <laughs> be inspired. Come to the island one day. Oh, I love that. Why don't you tell us a little bit of your background and how you got into dance and musical theater so we can get to know you a little better? 
I am from Puerto Rico, born and raised. I moved to New York City when I was 22 years old, um, actually 21, leading into 22. And I moved to New York because I dreamed of being on Broadway. I wanted to do musical theater. I started traveling to New York aware of musicals at the age of 17. And I often lie because I say that my first musical was Aida, but it wasn't. My first musical was Fosse, and I deny it. Why? Because it wasn't for me what Broadway represented. It wasn't for me Broadway. It was a black box show of old dancing thing, and I didn't understand why I was paying so much money for it. I'll come back to that in a little bit. And so then the second show I saw was Aida, and I saw what I thought was Broadway. I saw lightings. I saw customs. I saw an incredible choreography by Wayne Silento. I saw Hedda Hadley singing her face off. And I was like, I want to be there, right? So my experience of Broadway was this big razzle-dazzle event a la Disney, very much a la Disney, that inspired me to take the leap of faith into following my dreams. I will come back to this later, but I must sort of finish that route that today when I look at Broadway and I look at musical theater and I look at Fosse again, I then feel so grateful that the very first experience I ever saw was Fosse because you don't need the big lighting and the big razzle-dazzle. You need the essence of wanting to tell a story. So sometimes it takes an entire journey for you to realize that. And I'm grateful that my journey took at least a good 10 years of being in the city to realize, which is not so long when you think about it, to realize the benefits of all the production value, but that the real thing that matters to tell a story is telling a story. And Fosse was doing that. So how did I get here? I got here through the desire to be better. I got here to the desire to discover. I got here to the desire to learn. I got here through the nonconformity of just staying on what was given to me, which not being against education, but what I was learning in college wasn't it for me. Well, what I was learning in college wasn't the thing that was making me thrive. I putting my hands on the dirt has always been the thing that makes me thrive. And I've been very lucky to get my hands on the dirt with really special people like Jerry Mitchell, Andy Black and Bueller, Sergio Trujillo, and learn from them and the way that they make theater. And that, I think, has been my biggest education. I love that Aida was your first. That's my first Broadway musical. Yes! <laughs> so that was fun to hear. So in talking about like finding the essence of a story, can you tell us a little bit of why fame happened and kind of how that bilingual production was created and how that played out? There are a couple of things I should say. The first thing is that theater to me is so personal to the point that I don't know that I can work with everybody because there's people that just do it on the surface. And I'm learning more and more as I get older that I can't be on the surface. I need to, when I say get my hands dirty, I mean it. And the problem with musical theater is that people often do it through the surface. It feels like an archetype style of theater. It feels like something that you can get easily by because you have people that sing and people that dance. So again, the razzle-dazzle, I think that's going to be a theme for the day. 
the razzle dazzle sort of becomes the thing people think they're paying for or trying to sell and you lack truth. And so I remember being in college next to all the theater department people that were studying acting like me and they didn't value musical theater while I was falling madly in love with it. And with the years of looking at the issue, I learned that it's because the legit actor thinks that musical theater is easy because there have been shows that only showcase a layer of the story. They don't go deep into the root of why the story is being told in the first place. So then you meet crazy minds like Andy Black and Bueller, and you look at Hamilton, and you can debate how many people will actually go out of Hamilton talking about, oh my God, that choreography. But if you study beat by beat of what the choreography department does for Hamilton, you realize that you only understand the lyrics of Hamilton because there's choreography pointing out all the subtext and emotional journey of every lyric. And so, you know, that is going deep into the root of why you're telling a story, how you're telling a story, how do you put the elements of acting, singing, dancing, lighting, costumes in service of telling the story. So back to your question, and sorry, Spencer, for going in the longer route. But when I first auditioned for an off-Broadway musical, I auditioned for fame. That was my very first musical that I got to be off-Broadway with. And I had a very personal story with that because I did the entire chorus line, staying alive journey where I was auditioning outside of the Little Schubert Theater with over 500 people, being number 180 something on my chest, and then dancing from 500 to 300 to 200 to 150 people to 50 to 20 to we are only four on the stage of the Little Schubert Theater. And then we're only two. And being two of us, this other gentleman, Ryan Shoto, who had been a contestant in one of the medical idols contests, you know, he had the name, but he dropped the dance captain. So at that moment, I was like, I got the job. God, I hope I got it. I really got it, right? And then three, four days passed by, and I didn't hear anything. And I started sort of torturing myself. No, I didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't get it. So, you know, like a week later, the incredible gentleman who I later on became really good friends with, Dan Shaheen, called me on my cell phone, because there were cell phones still at that time. And he's like, hey, Luis Salgado, thank you for your audition. You did a great job. We did indeed hire Ryan because the spot we needed to fulfill was very specific to his body type. But we want you to come back to a private audition. And so I'm like, a private audition? And so I go into this private audition. Sorry that Spencer, my answer is so long. I go into this private audition and private, there's like 70 people in the, in the Shiver Theater. And so 70 became 50, became 40, became 30, became four. And it ended up being my friend Hector Flores and myself. And I was like, listen, Hector, I have no idea because last time I thought I got it and I didn't. So let's go celebrate that we had this journey. We're walking down. I was walking alone, minding my business, walking down to get some food and it starts to snow. And all of a sudden I get the cell phone call right there. Hey, can you come to the Schubert Theater tomorrow? We want you to start tomorrow. And so that journey gave me a certain ownership of this show. I met David De Silva, who we call Father Fame. I met Dan Shaheen, who owns part of the properties and rights and royalties of Fame's 
foundation and became friends with them by just being in the show and keeping a relationship for many years. Jump up to the Latinx movement it's happening. I'm part of it. I'm part of Revolución Latina, which is a nonprofit organization that I founded 13 years ago. I'm part of Viva Broadway, which is a movement of the Broadway League to bring Latino audiences to Broadway. I'm part of Women on the Verge. I'm part of On Your Feet, right? All of these things are happening. And my journey moves from being a performer to really wanting to tell stories with my voice as a director and as a choreographer. So I start working in Washington, D.C. in a theater company called Gala Theater. And so they hire me to do In the Heights. And I say to them, if we're going to do In the Heights, we got to really, really explore the script and make it as bilingual as possible. Each character needs to have their own accent, their own way of speaking. Let's honor representation as best we can. And the show ended up getting, I don't remember now, but probably like 18 nominations to the Helen Hayes Awards, from which we won nine of them. We expanded audiences at Gala Theater. People that had never known about Gala in Washington, D.C. came to see the show. So then Gala asked me, we want to do this formula with you again. And what can we do next? And so it so happened that Jose Fernandez is the person that was the author of Fame, the musical. And he happens to be of Cuban descent. And Gala Theater only does shows written by Latinos. So we got very, very lucky that I could justify fame because it had a Latino book writer. But I don't like to look at things just as they are. That's one of my problems theatrically. A lot of people want you to just do what's on the page. And I like to question what's on the page. So when I look at the material, I was like, well, I know the show. I've done the show. I know the people that I can get sort of some liberties in the show. I wonder what happens if the question we're asking is, what happens if this show, like me, waiting on 42nd Street to enter to audition in the Little Schubert Theater, honors Latinx artists who have immigrated from different parts of Latin America with the dream of becoming part of the fame high school? And I got permission to go with that. And David De Silva even gave me great ideas of how to change some names for some of the characters. And we started a collaboration that felt like we were doing a workshop of fame for a Latinx experience. That's my long answer. Oh, I love that. It's a great, great story. And I definitely think from your beginning to the end, I think there's always like this journey, right? You talked about finding your truth in the material. How did that truth that you found in that material move to your director's vision and then that collaboration and kind of working with bringing this material yeah. um, to a, to a new audience? A little, I feel a little bit tangled with this question. And it's a good thing for me artistically to thank you, Spencer, for making me question my own process. And the reason I say that is I'm right now in the middle of a project and I'm being questioned for questioning the material. And it's a hard process to feel like you're being questioned for questioning the material when my job, I think, is to question the material. And the more I question the material, the more I can find the truth of the way we are to tell the story. But anyway, I, I'm not going to apologize for that. And I think that every piece of theater, if you're going to tell the piece of theater, you have to feel something for it. I think part of the problem why it's so easy to just touch the surface is because sometimes people do it because it's a gig, right? Like, oh yeah, I can pay my rent. And so you look at it on the surface and you don't really physically, humanly, spiritually relate to the material. So you don't question the material. 
And so you do what's on the page and you end up sort of like, I'm not saying what's on the page is wrong, but there's no way you can enter the psyche of a writer if you don't question it, right? The writer was going through some shit in his life or some wonderful shit in his life when they were writing the show. And even if they were commissioned to do something for the money, they had to get inspiration from someplace. So they had had to go through a personal journey of confrontation. I believe that the author had their own hero's journey as they're writing the hero's journey. And so I really, really believe in that. So how am I to just follow stage directions and believe that I know the answers without letting me live the conflict of discovering the show? Am I making any sense with this? So when, I look, so when I look at the material, before I say yes to the material, I need to know if the material, can I curse? I need to know if the material can fuck me over. If the material can fuck me over, then I want to do the work. Then I know that it's something that's going to, it's going to change me. I'm not going to just get a check. I'm not just going to talk to people. I'm not just going to look cute, say, move to the left, move to the right. I'm actually going to have a live experience. And the more that I can have the life experience, the more that the thing I have to say, ideally, will resonate with the audience. So this is a longer journey to making art. And maybe, again, one day people will be like, Luis Salgado was just crazy. But it so far has given me a journey that makes me always feel at the end of the journey as a creative that I don't need to be in the room when the show opens. It takes me to a place where there's such ownership of the work in every actor, in every singer, in the music department, in the lighting design, that I can walk away and I watch opening and know that it's going to work. Because it doesn't depend on me or on the writer. It depends on the fact that we all took a painful, beautiful, inspiring journey of discovering the work. And I think the best example, even more so than fame, it's Ragtime. When I directed Ragtime, Somebody confronted me and said, oh, you might be the first immigrant to direct Ragtime. And I was like, wow. Like literally I went like, wow. So, you know, I looked at him and I said, well, first of all, I'm Puerto Rican, which means, you know, I'm part of the United States. I'm a United States citizen. So I take the vouch of immigrant. That's cool. I like it. But I just need to put that on the record. And second of all, thank you, because you just gave me the clue to how I need to direct the show. The show is written by a white team. So that's nothing wrong against that. But you're telling the story of this black man who is suffering the death of his lover slash wife and mother of his child, who he, yes, messed up at some point in his life with her, but now is working to rescue the relationship. And he has to go through this pain. From which perspective are we telling this? From the perspective of the white writer who wrote it, which I will always be grateful that they wrote it, or truly from the perspective of Cole House or Sarah or Tata, right? And so when this guy says to me, you know, you might be the first to direct the show, he gave me the best gift because I was like, every single time I ask a question about this show, I have to ask it from the point of view of the immigrant. I have to ask it from the point of view of, of people who are not being heard. And then I discovered Sarah never gets heard. If you study Ragtime, Sarah has nothing to say in the show. 
she's written as a victim, as a black woman who happens to be left by the men, who's a hot, sexy guy musician, and who's now the employee of a white family and gets murdered, right? Like, if you look at it, there's very little that Sarah gets to put out for, quote unquote, let's say, Black Lives Matter or female empowerment or any of this reality social issues that the show so very well could address. So then I did something bizarre because I'm, quote unquote, just an immigrant. And I was like, I'm going to take all the light away from this character. And so in her biggest song, in The Light and Designer and I, we did this light narrow thing where we just give her a really dim floor spotlight, which basically only lits her nose. And this actress is sobbing and crying. Burgers are going left and right. The notes are being hit. The baby is on her arms. There's like all the scenic design that we did. I had all these towers that we did over 35 compositions with three towers. And they're moving and grumbling around the song. And like we're completely upstaging the song. And people are coming angry during intermission. Why did you not let us see Sarah? Why did you upstage Sarah? Why did you? And I said, thank you. Because finally you want to hear her story. And so that's the kind of theater I want to make, right? The audience was actively fighting for Sarah's voice. And as we explored the unheard voices of this story, we found ways to trigger the audience to actually want to listen to their stories. And so if you follow the stage direction, you'll never do that. So that's a little bit of, I forgot the question right now, but that's my answer. No, that's great and really interesting to hear the perspective specifically around ragtime as well. I think both of these stories that you've told are immigrant stories. And I'm kind of curious too with fame, with these new voices in these characters and a new look of diversity in the show by being bilingual in Spanish, like how did that change the story? Did it change the story or was it just more open to different people to see themselves in that story? I think it's both, perhaps. And I think, you know, clearly as you play with those twists, you give more people permission to identify, right? Because if Shlomo is a Jewish great musician, then a Jewish great musician or a family that understands great musicians within the Jewish community will feel very empowered by the journey of Shlomo. The moment that I make Shlomo a Dominican Jew whose family happened to stumble upon great music, now I have the Jewish community that can identify and I have the Dominican community that can identify and I have the privileged musician family, but also those who hustle to become musicians. And so I went from one scope to four scopes because the background was more diverse. And so that sort of rings true to a lot of the characters and the way we play with them, one. Plus, I added layers. You know, there's this whole Serena Katz moment when she's like, gay? The love of my life is gay? For me, the real lead character of any musical I direct is the ensemble. Like, I try to figure it out a way to make the ensemble the lead role. And so the moment that that argument is there, and again, we're in 2019, 
and the topic of the gay community and sort of the awareness and acceptance of what the community is and how it goes into LGBTQ and all of these things open up a whole new box. So I put ensemble characters that are gay in their characters around that scene. And I added lines for them. So now, and I added lines in Spanish so that I would not violate the actual script. And it feels like an approved quote unquote ad lib, but it was in Spanish. Now she's saying gay, the love of my life is gay. And an ensemble member comes, mija, que te pasa a ti? No te metas con mi gente, sabes? And walks away and the audience starts clapping. So a scene that would have just been a cliche of a scene all of a sudden becomes, I'm going to clap for this moment statement because an ensemble member at lib by translating it's like hey girl what's wrong what's wrong with you please don't mess up with my people you know and he walks out and so an ensemble member gets to defend the gay community where in the script there's no defense to the gay community there's just a statement which will pose a question and so that's a little bit of a moment which it took it takes me five seconds in the entire scope of the show but it amplifies an entire statement to a community, representation, diversity, justice, you know, the same worth. I have a transition in fame. Gala Theater has this beautiful challenge. Gala is a really small space. And we, uh, my mind works like I think I'm always in a multi-million dollar musical. So I want things to come up and down and come in and go out and turn around and, uh, you know, like the towers in Ragtime. 35 compositions. I got to show you that design one day. And so the... You know, I, I did this thing with lockers. Like, imagine that this box is the stage. And so I have these lockers that in the top of Act 2 are like this. So there's a moment when I, I want to make a new setting change. So I, I bring this ensemble member to move it manually. But then this Asian performer, also from the ensemble, picks her up right here. So now I have a Latina, Black Latina, here with an Asian and they hold hands. She brings her a paper flower. They says like, oh my God, hold hand. Mike, I get goosebumps telling you this. And then they walk together. What happens next? I don't have to tell the audience, right? But it's another moment to, to say that love is equal in any way. And that's a five second transition. And you as an audience member might miss it. That's fine. You as an audience member like me might feel like that is a show. For me, that moment gives all the permission to the development and artistic evolution and human evolution and each one of these characters. And so that, that's the way I like to think of theater and the reason why I question it. Well, I love that because that's not even a change in a script or something that you would have to get approval for. Yeah. I'm air quoting that. And you know, that definitely will show up for people and But it goes see to the question of diversity, right? And inclusion and the reality that every piece of theater, when you question it, will give you the opportunity to discover those things. Right. Did you have any issues within both of those property managers of kind of how you see it in a more diverse lens? And then, you know, because the writers of Ragtime are white and, you know, like. I don't want to brag. You... This is going to probably sound like the wrong answer, but I, I feel very lucky that I work with all of them. So, you know, with Steve, um, Lynn and Steve, I did Rocky the musical. 
So it was not far-fetched for me to send an email and say, I'm working on this show. I have these ideas. Do you think I'm okay exploring them? And I got an email back saying, go, go ahead. You know, and so that, that outside of the MTI or whatever, it's a personal relationship. Like I wouldn't, I know that it becomes streakier when it's general, right? But I've been kind of lucky. I, I have to use the word as much as I rather not, but I've been really lucky to work with these people. You know, Lee Manuel Miranda, I did the show with them originally. So it's like, I know where the Spanish rights are and what he wants with them, which belongs to a Dominican Republic company. And so I legally went and I purchased the Spanish rights and I purchased the English rights and utilizing the content from both, I created a hybrid, you know, and then I called him and I said, hey, Lynn, can you be in our seats pro? And, you know, I put up my computer and people were like, imagine dying, you know, having Lynn here, our seats pro through, through, not, it wasn't Zoom. I think at that time it was FaceTime or, or Skype or something. And with fame, so the same, father fame, you know, it's alive, thank God. And I was able to write to him and then check in. So it's been all of those shows. I've been fortunate to be able to make a direct email. Yeah, that's amazing that you've been able to even just connect with the writers. I mean, a lot of shows, yeah. we don't have that opportunity any longer. Now, yeah. working on new... Well, but um, the, 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 well sorry, sorry, it's Spencer. When it's, if it's Shakespeare, you're not going to write a Shakespeare. You know, like, that's the other thing. Like, the, the beauty of, you know, Beckett and, and Shakespeare and whatever is, like, all of these stories have been done, and they've been done for years and years and years so if you don't question it why are you doing it in the first place so on that realm there is the there is that you know like you should discover the material to your reality today because it's been done right and then on the newer writers that exist if you cannot send them a direct email try to find them try to learn from them because they are the ones who wrote the story, even sitting down 30 minutes with any of them will open up the canvas of questions that you want to then ask yourself as you're telling that story. I mean, it's, it's what I think, but I, again, maybe I speak from a privileged point of view only because a lot of the scenarios I've been able to go directly to the source. That makes sense. But I, I mean, amazing that you have had that opportunity and then be able to bring the story in kind of a new way, or at least through your lens, which is different than in the past, like you noted, like you might've been the first immigrant to direct Ragtime. So that's really, really quite awesome. Are you working on any new kind of revivals of shows or is your focus gonna be more on new work or kind of where are you at right now? I do both. I had a, I had a few years where I was only in work and then I got called by a couple of companies like Gala, the Axel Rudd Theater that started giving me, you know, some titles. And I didn't think I was going to fall in love with that process as much. But because I kept treating it as if it was a new show, I did. Right. I did. Because, you know, I come from working on new shows as a performer, like in the Heights. And Rocky already had been done in Europe, but they had been renewing or revisiting how to tell the story for New York. So still felt like a new show. 
Um, Woman on the Verge was a new show. On Your Feet was a new show. So I've been in the room in development always. And I love and I have learned the developmental process. So I, I really like treating the work that way. Of course, there's so much to respect. Maybe if I do rack time in five more years, I will study the classical in a different way and then contrast it against what I did already and try to find a happy medium there. I don't know, maybe, you know, but to answer your question, I like both. And because this year is a pandemic crazy year, it's harder to tell because now we're, that takes us into the whole how to do something on Zoom or how to do something digital conversation, which I'm sure that we'll probably touch on later. But last year, which was a great year, I did seven shows in what, like six months. So like I directed a Cirque du Soleil show. I did Aida. I did Fame. I did an industrial for Telemundo. Like, so the scope of things that were happening were all so, so different that doing Fame was something that felt new, although it existed. Doing Cirque du Soleil, the same thing thing because I took the show that came to Broadway Paramore with Sergio Trujillo and we put it up in Germany but we we challenged everything that happened in New York so we changed the script we changed the music we changed the acts so it again it felt like doing something new with Aida the same like I was like okay so if I am so busy with this work how do I want to do Aida which was the first show that inspired me to come to New York like this has to be somewhat of like the biggest thing I do, and I ended up sort of backing up from it. I, I called my scenic designer, my lighting designer, I said, I said, this is your show. So I gave them a concept, and I was like, I want on ACDC Rock to meet Rob Wilson, you know, and go, go to work. And so that's what we did. We got like the ACDC lighting design with, you know, LED sticks, with Aspair sticks, and we put that all around the show. And then we did this cool um, Aster lighting pyramids and we did a Rob Wilson background. I mean, it was like, it was like doing a painting. Like forget the show for a second. Like I came from doing Cirque du Soleil and doing fame and all of a sudden we land to, to Aida and it was like, almost like resting. It was like, I'm just gonna create poetry, visual poetry. And then, you know, that visual poetry still is triggered by Elton John's music and it's triggered by an amazing performer cast, you know, that will bring their heart forward and all the conflicts that a black and white relationship, like the show is already there. I don't have to look for it. But my reinventing the wheel, quote unquote, is bringing ACDC rock music concert to Rob Wilson's point of view. And let's go. The work is there. Oh, I wish I could have seen that. That sounds amazing. Thank you. So with Broadway being on pause because of COVID, we've definitely had some space to kind of look more at equitable re representation and racism on Broadway. Yeah. And it's like pretty clear we need to address all of that. How do yeah. you see that moving forward to reality? You know, there's a lot of you know, conversation now. You know, it takes all of us. I think in order for anything to happen, all of us have to be aware of the of the role we play. And, you know, movement, change, revolution, evolution needs everybody participating. It, it needs awareness. I could go into a sensitive side of this topic because I guess I could say we're all part of the problem. You know, I am part of the problem. 
and I run a nonprofit organization, as I said before, called Revolución Latina, which is about empowering and inspiring the Latino community. And yet, I am very fond of going to Amsterdam, which I did, and putting on your feed with an Amsterdam cast, from which, you know, what is the percentage of Latinos in it? And, you know, if we were to take everything into what we quote unquote can or cannot do, then I wouldn't be able to do theater ever because there will always be a red flag. But I have to tell you that I, I feel so fortunate to go to Amsterdam and share with, you know, Amsterdam performers the truth of Gloria Stefan life, of Emilia Stefan life, of Gloria Fajardo's life, and be able to give to them the honoring the valuing, the respecting of the Cuban culture. And that is a triumph. And of course, somebody can be in and say, why is Louise directing a show with all white Dutch casts? Well, that's the job I got. And in the job I got, I can look at it. Why is all these people playing these roles? Or I can look at it of like, I have the perfect opportunity to further educate and share the value of the Latino culture to non-Latinx non performers. And so that's one way of looking at it. Versus if I'm in New York City and I know that there's a gigantic pool of performers, as we did on the Broadway show, we will fight to have the greatest amount of representation possible because no one can come and say, no, there are no Latinos here to do the show. But in Amsterdam, you know, we had our Cuban dancers and we had... You know, we had the poll that was available, but the truth is that there's a gigantic pool of incredible, talented people that are Dutch, that can do the work. And so my job is to give them the value. The problem is when there's no one to honor and value the culture, and you're just putting an archetype of what the culture you think it looks like. And that's completely wrong, which then goes into the example of that Australia in the Heights production where... No one knew what they were doing, you know, and it got shut down. And so it's a very sensitive topic. I am learning as I go, you know, more and more where I need to put a foot down and where am I part of a problem or where I can contribute more to a solution. But I think your, my answer to you, Spencer, and to the class is that it takes all of us being openly working towards doing better, better work more just work. But listen, if Jordan writes a show today and and there's a non-Latino role and he hires me, I want to be able to play it. I want Jordan to know that I am good enough as, as an artist, that I get an opportunity to play it. I don't only want to play the Latino role in Jordan's script. And I think that that has to go both ways. And that A, we need to prove our artistry by being ready when the opportunity comes. And then B, we have to be sensible to the realities of our society and try to be as just and fair to opportunities as possible, which is not to say taking opportunities away from anybody. That's amazing. One of the things that we're doing in class is looking at the past and also looking at the future about how do we uplift voices and stories in new ways. What type of shows on Broadway are you looking 
or hoping that producers are going to produce when we get back? And like, what does that look like with new stories and new voices? Wow. I don't know the answer. You know, I don't know the answer because I guess because of two things. One, I I am not playing the game of trying to do diversity. I've been doing diversity. I am not playing the game of trying to tell stories about her voices. My entire company, Sagal Productions, is about making art with a purpose, telling the stories of the on her voices. You know, and I think some of the examples I already gave to you sort of show you that and that that's what's on my heart and on my mind. So when you ask me the question, there it's, it's, it's intriguing because I'm fighting against, in my mind, the reality that now people would just do it as a gimmick. They will claim diversity and they will use the word, but they don't mean it and they don't even know what it is. And they will claim stories of the unheard, but they don't really study the unheard. You know, when I did a production for Peru, I went for two weeks to a lot of different towns and I interviewed the rich and the poor and I went to the jungle and I went to Chincha and I fell in love with the people of Chincha and I went deeper and I kept going back every other week of rehearsals to continue to learn about their life and why they dance on sandals and why they did Sopa Seca, you know, and, and, and I wrote that show and I directed the show and I choreographed the show knowing that I was having a live experience in the Peruvian community. Um, so for me, it's not a game. It's not about putting words that validate me selling a show. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. I'd rather that you don't care and boldly state, I don't give a fuck. And we're going to do this this way. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to go see what it is they're doing. You know, then you claiming diversity and that you came in on her, claiming on her voices and that you care and you don't. You don't care to study... You know, I don't want that fake shit. And so that versus what stories I, I would love now to see. I want human stories. Sarah is human. She was written by a white writer, but she's human. And she's given us the opportunity. So there it is. If you look deep into it, you'll find that there's an unheard voice screaming to be heard. You know, Aida and Radamus, who are part of Two societies in, in Egypt and Nubia who are imposed by political powers, they don't get to really be who they are. They're being imposed who they shall be on both realms, on the white and on the black realm of this story, uh, as presented by Disney. So those are on her voices. When you study that and you look into it, and you can come in with a thousand names to use as background to both of those characters in past time and in modern time. When you look into, you know, Rocky, same thing. The Italian stallion, how many Italian stallions are still having to prove that they have self-worth in the world? Whether it is boxing or selling pizza or selling stocks or fighting against COVID. And so it is really up to us to care to get our hands dirty in the stories we're telling and look for some freaking truth that we can use, not to use it, but to serve the story and amplify the real whys 
this actors, characters, stories, journeys, songs, moments of choreography have to exist. If not, why are we doing it? Right. I think that's a great question always to ask. <laughs> Thank you for your perspective on that. It's, it's really, I think it's really important that diversity and inclusion is not a gimmick. Uh, so thank you for noting yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's a, that's really the important. Biggest danger. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think it's the biggest danger zone, really. I, it, it saddens me. It frustrates me. Yeah. Thank you for like bringing that to the conversation. Definitely. We're getting closer to the end. So I want to ask you 10 kind of quick questions. So what I think you've already mentioned this, but we'll go we'll go through it. Maybe it's um, a little different. What was the first musical you ever saw? Musical, musical, musical I ever saw, Pinocchio. Oh, Pinocchio. Your favorite musical of all time? Moving Out. Musical Guilty Pleasure. <laughs> wow. Mm. That's a hard one. Guilty, oh, I mean, it's in the Heights, you know, in the Heights. I can put the music and sing to it. I guess now it's also Hamilton. I do my exercises every morning to Hamilton because the music is so freaking cool. Were you in uh, musicals in high school? Not in high school, no. No, the answer is no. If it has to be a short answer. If it's a longer answer, I will say I ended up creating my own musicals out of plays that I did in high school. Oh, cool. Your favorite show you've been in or directed or produced? In the Heights. Your dream role or dream show to direct, produce? I want to be Radames in Aida. Favorite cast album? Hamilton. A favorite theater company that you've loved working for? Yeah, Cirque du Soleil. They're just so powerful. You know, I wanted to say Gala because of the opportunity to do the Latinx experience and be able to, you know, do the bilingual experiments and all that stuff. But... Cirque du Soleil is like a machine of creativity. You know, you go to their labs in Canada and you spend time there and you're just dreaming for months on how to do one act. And you don't get that luxury every time. And it's like being a kid over and over again. So that I want a lot more of that in my life. Love it. Someone that you look up to on uh, Broadway. Andy Blackett-Miller and Jerry Mitchell. I thought you would say those three. And then finally, a quick snapshot of a moment you miss about live theater. Being on the wings, afraid to come on stage, the lightings are hitting, the music is playing, you're excited and you go. That's a great moment. That's a great moment. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been such an interesting conversation, definitely right in line with what we're talking about in class and the project that they're working on. I, I definitely heard lots of really wonderful things. They're, they're looking at like directing and producing a revival of a show that includes more diversity and inclusivity. And so nice. some really great, um, conversation that worked right into that. So thank you so much. Well, 
thank you for the work you're doing with them, number one. Thank you all for, for being in, involved in the arts, you know. I think, again, having these conversations is relevant because you're the, the, the next generation of theater makers. And so I hope you care, you know. I hope you care for everything. And I, I'm just going to backtrack from one thing, not because I want to backtrack, but because I want to make sure that I don't impose my own journey. You know, question everything, but also pay attention to what's written on the page. So, they are all great clues, so. They are. Well, thank you so much. And we will be following you on your journey as well and excited for any other new things that you're producing, directing, being in, and so thank you. Thank you, thank you. I am right now working as an associate director and co-choreographer to a concert that's happening October 1st. It's going to be accessible for everybody on Playbill. So it's actually a beautiful Latinx experience. Sergio Trujillo is the director. And, you know, we have a wonderful community of artists coming together. And it's also a fundraising event for Broadway Cares and Fights AIDS. So I, I invite you all to tune in October 1st. We will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you for listening to this episode of Broadway Refocused, produced by Fashion Consort. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about the Broadway Refocused project and its musical theater curriculum, please visit broadwayrefocused.com. You can also join the conversation on Instagram at Broadway Refocused. Thank you to Trevor List, who developed our graphic design, to Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, for their voiceover work, and Spencer Powell for our theme music. Stay tuned for our next episode.